Let me tell you a story, podcast number 81. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We'll begin this podcast with a couple excerpts from Jeannie Kay's Prison Librarian Journal. Her entries are always fascinating and fun, and this first one is titled Escapes and Romance with three question marks behind it. It's a test. I just know it. I got to work today, and first this inmate stopped to talk to the other librarian. He is in his 40s, very good-looking and nicely built. He works in the chapel library and took the fall for a white-collar crime, he says. Then we get a new custodian, and he looks like the actor Tony Danza. The day continued like that with every cute guy in the place coming in. Then this one guy came in. He was getting out in a week, and he said, Where have you been? I guess he wanted to say goodbye. This is a rebellious guy who's landed in prison three times now. He violated a restraining order to get his stuff from his cheating wife. Twice. So he was charged with burglary. Then he drank a beer while on probation. Then he moved without permission. Not sure if he's learned his lesson yet. He was so normal compared to other inmates, that I had to be careful around him. As, as I told him, right or wrong, we all have to learn to follow rules, which includes not getting involved with inmates. We have a very nice-looking Native American clerk who is also leaving. I asked him about jobs on the outside, as I am very worried about how a felon gets work. He told me they go to work in construction, the oil fields, etc., The problem is that many people doing that work have substance abuse problems, and there are a lot of drugs to tempt these parolees. While I was gone for Anissa's wedding, we had an escape. That is unusual here. This guy was a Mexican national, which is another name for an illegal alien. Apparently he went the wrong direction if he was headed for Mexico and ended up in a canyon here. Another medium prison also had an escape of a murderer. Not sure how that could have happened. I'm surprised they don't ship Mexican nationals back to Mexico instead of housing them in our prisons. I did hear that when we deport them, they jump right back across the border. Some of our inmates ask us for books on sex. We don't get into it with them, but we just request such books on interlibrary loan. Sometimes the inmates try to shock us, but we are too old to be shocked by much. I guess when a guy is getting out, after serving time for a while, they are worried about their prowess. We do have a list of books that are not allowed, and they include pedophilia, bestiality, torture, bondage, etc. I've been watching the segregation in the chow hall. The Hispanics sit in one area, the Mexican nationals in another, the blacks in another, and the whites interspersed among them in groups as well. If a barber is black, you will see a long line of blacks waiting for him. Same with the others. This next excerpt is titled, How Does a Criminal Dress? 
My meth cook assistant told me how he dresses on the streets for his business. He has long, dark hair and wore black, black, black. Black boots, jeans, shirt, long black duster, which is a western-style coat, black hat like a fedora, but leather. He had guns, two sawed-off shotguns under each arm, with about three other guns on various parts of his person. How would you like to live like that? He only goes out after dark, and because he is in the drug and arms business, he has to protect himself. He says now that he thinks he might not cook big quantities, just enough for himself. Maybe by the time he gets out, he might win a lifestyle change. But I'm not holding my breath. On Saturday, I had a discussion with one of my clerks. The day before, I told the clerks I had to go to the public library downtown and pick up their interlibrary loan books. One of the guys said that one of my other clerks wanted to give me a big hug and a kiss for that. I said to him, I don't think so. In fact, I was just reading the rules again and not even. So on Saturday, the guy was telling me that I have fans amongst my inmates, since there are not many women around. Gee, thanks, I told him. You may not know this, but we cannot have anything to do with felons or former felons for three years after they are off paper. I told him I would not risk my job, my reputation, or going to prison myself for that. The next chapter in Treasure Island is 31. It's The Treasure Hunt, Flint's Pointer. I'll start with a paragraph before that. And Dr. Livesey shook hands with me through the stockade, nodded to Silver, and set off at a brisk pace into the wood. Jim, said Silver, when we were alone, if I saved your life, you saved mine, and I'll not forget it. I seen the doctor waving you to run for it with the tail of my eye, I did. And I seen you say no as plain as hearing. Jim, that's one to you. This is the first glint of hope I had since the attack failed, and I owe it you. And now, Jim, we're to go in for this here treasure hunting with sealed orders, too, and I don't like it. And you and me must stick close, back to back like, and we'll save our necks in spite of fate and fortune. Just then a man hailed us from the fire that breakfast was ready, and we were soon seated here and there about the sand over biscuit and fried junk. They had lit a fire fit to roast an ox, and it was now grown so hot that they could only approach it from the windward, and even there not without precaution. In the same wasteful spirit, they had cooked, I suppose, three times more than we could eat, and one of them, with an empty laugh, threw what was left into the fire, which blazed and roared again over this unusual fuel. I never in my life saw men so careless of the morrow. Hand to mouth is the only word that can describe their way of doing. And what with wasted food and sleeping sentries, though they were bold enough for a brush and be done with it, I could see their entire unfitness for anything like a prolonged campaign. Even Silver eating away, with Captain Flint upon his shoulder, had not a word of blame for their recklessness. And this the more surprised me, for I thought he had never shown himself so cunning as he did then. Aye, mates, said he, it's lucky you have barbecue to think for you with this here head. I got what I wanted, I did. Sure enough, they have the ship. Where they have it, I don't know yet. 
But once we hit the treasure, we'll have to jump about and find out. And then, mates, us that has the boats, I reckon, has the upper hand. Thus he kept running on, with his mouth full of the hot bacon. Thus he restored their hope and confidence, and, I more than suspect, repaired his own at the same time. As for hostage, he continued, that's his last talk, I guess, with them he loves so dear. I've got my piece of news, and thank ye to him for that, but it's over and done. I'll take him in a lion when we go treasure hunting, for we'll keep him like so much gold in case of accidents, you mark. And in the meantime, once we get the ship and treasure both, and off to sea like jolly companions, why then, we'll talk Mr. Hawkins over, we will, and we'll give him his share, to be sure, for all his kindness. It was no wonder the men were in a good humor now. For my part, I was horribly cast down. Should the scheme he had now sketched prove feasible, Silver, already doubly a traitor, would not hesitate to adopt it. He had still a foot in either camp, and there was no doubt he would prefer wealth and freedom with the pirates to a bare escape from hanging, which was the best he had to hope on our side. Nay, and even if things so fell out that he was forced to keep his faith with Dr. Livesey, even then what danger lay before us. What a moment that would be when the suspicions of his followers turned to certainty, and he and I should have to fight for dear life, he, a cripple, and I, a boy, against five strong and active seamen. Add to this double apprehension the mystery that still hung over the behavior of my friends, their unexplained desertion of the stockade, their inexplicable session of the chart, or, harder still to understand, the doctor's last warning to Silver, look out for squalls when you find it. And you will readily believe how little taste I found in my breakfast, and with how uneasy a heart I set forth behind my captors on the quest for treasure. We made a curious figure had anyone been there to see us, all in soiled sailor clothes, and all but me armed to the teeth. Silver had two guns slung about him, one before and one behind, besides the great cutlass at his waist, and a pistol in each pocket of his square-tailed coat. To complete his strange appearance, Captain Flint sat perched upon his shoulder, and gabbling odds and ends of purposeless sea-talk. I had a line about my waist, and followed obediently after the sea-cook, who held the loose end of the rope, now in his free hand, now between his powerful teeth. For all the world, I was led like a dancing bear. The other men were variously burthened, some carrying picks and shovels, for that had been the very first necessary they brought ashore from the Hispaniola, others laden with pork, bread, and brandy for the midday meal. All the stores, I observed, came from our stock, and I could see the truth of Silver's words the night before. Had he not struck a bargain with the doctor, he and his mutineers, deserted by the ship, must have been driven to subsist on clear water and the proceeds of their hunting. Water would have been little to their taste. A sailor is not usually a good shot. And, besides all that, when they were so short of eatables, it was not likely they would be very flush of powder. Well, thus equipped, we all set out, even the fellow with a broken head, who should certainly have kept in shadow. 
and straggled one after another to the beach where the two gigs awaited us. Even these bore trace of the drunken folly of the pirates, one in a broken thwart, and both in their muddy and unbailed condition. Both were to be carried along with us for the sake of safety, and so, with our numbers divided between them, we set forth upon the bosom of the anchorage. As we pulled over, there was some discussion on the chart. The Red Cross was, of course, far too large to be a guide, and the terms of the note on the back, as you will hear, admitted of some ambiguity. They ran, the reader may remember, thus. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north of north-northeast. Skeleton island, east-southeast, and by east. Ten feet. A tall tree was thus the principal mark. Now, right before us, the anchorage was bounded by a plateau from two to three hundred feet high, adjoining on the north the sloping southern shoulder of the spyglass and rising again toward the south into the rough cliffy eminence called the Mizzenmast Hill. The top of the plateau was dotted thickly with pine trees of varying height. Every here and there, one of a different species rose forty or fifty feet clear above its neighbors, and which of these was the particular tall tree of Captain Flint could only be decided on the spot and by the readings of the compass. Yet, although that was the case, every man on board the boats had picked a favorite of his own ere we were halfway over, Long John alone shrugging his shoulders and bidding them wait till they were there. We pulled easily, by Silver's directions, not to weary the hands prematurely, and after quite a long passage landed at the mouth of the second river, that which runs down a woody cleft of the spyglass. Thence, bending to our left, we began to ascend the slope towards the plateau. At the first outset, heavy, miry ground and a matted, marish vegetation greatly delayed our progress. But by little and little, the hill began to steepen and become stony underfoot, and the wood to change its character and grow in a more open order. It was, indeed, a most pleasant portion of the island that we were now approaching. A heavy-scented broom and many flowering shrubs had almost taken the place of grass. Thickets of green nutmeg trees were dotted here and there with the red columns and the broad shadow of the pines and the first mingled their spice with the aroma of the others. The air, besides, was fresh and stirring, and this, under the sheer sunbeams, was a wonderful refreshment to our senses. The party spread itself abroad in a fan shape, shouting and leaping to and fro. About the center, and a good way behind the rest, Silver and I followed, I tethered by my rope, he plowing with deep pants among the sliding gravel. From time to time, indeed, I had to lend him a hand, or he must have missed his footing and fallen backward down the hill. We had proceeded for about half a mile, and were approaching the brow of the plateau when the man upon the farthest left began to cry aloud, as if in terror. Shout after shout came from him, and the others began to run in his direction. "'He can't have found the treasure,' said old Morgan, hurrying past us from the right, for that's clean atop. Indeed, as we found when we also reached the spot, it was something very different. 
at the foot of a pretty big pine and involved in a green creeper, which had even partly lifted some of the smaller bones, a human skeleton lay, with a few shreds of clothing on the ground. I believe a chill struck for a moment to every heart. He was a seaman, said George Mary, who, bolder than the rest, had gone up close and was examining the rags of clothing. Leastways, this is good sea cloth. Aye, aye, said Silver. Like enough. You wouldn't look to find a bishop here, I reckon. But what sort of a way is that for bones to lie? Taint nature. Indeed, on a second glance, it seemed impossible to fancy that the body was in a natural position. But for some disarray, the work, perhaps, of birds that had fed upon him or of the slow-growing creeper that had gradually enveloped his remains, the man lay perfectly straight, his feet pointing in one direction, his hands raised above his head like a diver's, pointing directly in the opposite. "'I've taken a notion into my old numbskull,' observed Silver. "'Here's the compass. There's the tip-top point of Skeleton Island, sticking out like a tooth. Just take a bearing, will you, along the line of them bones?' It was done. The body pointed straight in the direction of the island, and the compass read duly east-southeast and by east. "'I thought so!' cried the cook. "'This here is a pinter. "'Right up there is our lion for the pole star and the jolly dollars. "'But by thunder, if it don't make me cold inside to think of Flint, "'this is one of his jokes, and no mistake. "'Him and these six was alone here. "'He killed them every man, "'and this one he hauled here and lay down by compass. "'Shiver my timbers. "'They're long bones, and the hair has been yellow.' Aye, that would be Allardus. You mind Allardus, Tom Morgan? Aye, aye, returned Morgan. I mind him. He owed me money, he did, and took my knife ashore with him. Speaking of knives, said another, why don't we find hisn lying around? Flint warn't the man to pick a seaman's pocket, and the birds, I guess, would leave it be. By the powers, and that's true, cried Silver. There ain't a thing left here, said Mary, still feeling round among the bones. Not a copper doit nor basy box. It don't look natural to me. No, by gum, it don't, agreed Silver. Not natural. Nor not nice, says you. Great guns, messmates. But if Flint was living, this would be a hot spot for you and me. Six they were, and six are we, and bones is what they are now. I saw him dead with these here deadlights, said Morgan. Billy took me in. There he laid with penny pieces on his eyes. Dead. Eh, sure enough. He's dead and gone below, said the fellow with the bandage. But if ever spirit walked, it would be Flint's. Dear heart, but he died bad, did Flint. Aye, that he did, observed another. Now he raged, and now he hollered for the rum. And now he sang, Fifteen men were his only song, mates. And I tell you true, I never rightly liked to hear it since. It was main hot, and the windy was open, and I hear that old song coming out as clear as clear, and the death hall on the man already. Come, come, said Silver. Stow this talk. He's dead, and he don't walk. That I know. Leastways he won't walk by day, and you may lay to that. 
Care killed a cat. Fetch a head for the doubloons. We started, certainly, but in spite of the hot sun and the staring daylight, the pirates no longer ran separate and shouting through the wood, but kept side by side and spoke with bated breath. The terror of the dead buccaneer had fallen on their spirits. We're in chapter 25 of Winds of Wyoming. And if I remember right, that book has 35 chapters. So we're nearing the end. Only 10 more chapters to go. Kate pulled her wheelchair into the church, opened it and sat down, facing the band members, who were busy setting up the equipment. The only one who noticed her was Wanda. Hey, guys, Wanda motioned toward Kate. In case you haven't met her, this is Kate Nielsen. With a little arm twisting, she agreed to join us on our parade float. Looks like you twisted her leg, not her arm. The grinning bass player threaded his way between cables to shake Kate's hand. You're a saint to help us out, especially with your leg in a cast. I'm Jackson. Kate took his hand. Nice to meet you. I'm Monty. The drummer raised a drumstick above his head. You the gal got attacked by a wolf pack? Kate glanced at Mike, who hadn't yet acknowledged her presence, and who chose that moment to plug in the keyboard. She swallowed the hurt. Wolves attacked Mike's dog, but not me. I'd like to know what happened to your leg, if you don't mind telling us. It's a long story, Kate said, but the short version is that I was thrown off a horse. At the Whispering Pines? Right. They all looked at Mike, who shrugged his shoulders. Can we get this show on the road? Kate's heartbeat slowed to a dull thump. Mike didn't want anything to do with her. He'd only called once since the day he left Dimple's house mad. She tried to explain her situation, but she'd bungled it and he'd quickly ended the call. Later, she left a message for him on the office answering machine. But he'd never returned her call. She sighed and maneuvered her chair through the maze of microphones and music stands, biting her lip to keep from crying. Mike's stiff shoulders broadcast the barrier between his heart and hers. She angled her wheelchair away from him so she could concentrate on the music, and the moment the practice ended, she rolled to the door, calling her goodbyes over her shoulder. Wanda helped her lower the chair down the side step. She hadn't covered much distance when she heard Mike call her name. Her heart did a handspring. Maybe they'd talk and clear the air. She swung the wheelchair around. The light from the doorway outlined his rigid body against the dark sky. He strode toward her but stopped several feet from her wheelchair. Why are you doing this? She could see him clench and unclench his fingers. Doing what? Singing in the group. Because Wanda and Chuck asked me to. First... You ask me not to tell people where you are, which has made my life plenty difficult. Then you decide to ride on a parade float where the entire county will see you. Doesn't add up, Kate. What's the deal? He blew out an exasperated huff. Wanda said they needed a soprano, so I... How could she tell him that despite the danger, danger he didn't know about, she believed God wanted her to sing at the parade? If it's that hard to explain, don't bother. 
He cursed, something she'd never heard him do before. From the moment you came to town, you've left a trail of questions. Why not one more? Kate gripped the wheelchair arms. Did you tell Tara Hughes I'm staying with Dimple? After a long moment, he said, I can't believe you asked me that. Before she could respond, he swiveled and marched back to the chapel. Mike, wait. Please. She hated to beg, but they had to find a way to dissolve the tension between them. Hand on the railing, he stopped. I'm sorry if I offended you, Kate said. Tara came to Dimple's house looking for me right after I got out of the hospital. I didn't know how she knew, so... Mike twisted toward her. So you assumed I told her. I'd seen you with her by the barn. You two seemed close. Kate sat taller. But if you didn't tell her, I apologize for assuming that you did. She stopped and waited. I already explained my non-relationship with Tara Hughes. He dipped his head, his shoulder squared against the yellow light. I apologize for my language. With that, he disappeared through the doorway. Kate slowly rotated her chair to face a cemetery shrouded by nightfall. They'd apologized to each other, but had they made any inroads in the impasse? She should have told him how much she missed him. But did he miss her? If tonight was any indication, the answer was no. I'm going to read from Serenity Aura's Father to the Fatherless. Ace dangled his legs over the edge of his loft. A Martin HD-28 that had seen better days laid across his muscled thighs. His dad had given him the guitar on his 16th birthday. It was the only blonde he'd ever loved. As he strummed his fingers across the six perfectly tuned strings, his loft apartment filled with the sound. Somehow it salved his raw nerves. He'd just finished another difficult hunt. It had taken him across the southwestern United States and eventually south of the border, but not too far south. Ace didn't hunt wild animals. He didn't have a trophy case needing to be filled. No elk or a cougar enticed him. Ace hunted men. As a skip tracer, bounty hunter, or retrieval expert, his mom's preferred term, Ace spent much of his life behind the wheel. Not always did his prey take him out of the country. But Rodrigo Ramirez did. The alleged drug dealer had excellent contacts and a good knowledge of the country. But Ace had Josu. Josu, an inconspicuous 19-year-old, had a talent for overhearing just the right thing. He had been sweeping up after his mom's guests had finished eating when he heard what Ace needed to know. So, $40 later, Josu had led Ace to the correct gentleman's club. Ace had the man gagged and bagged and heading back home by breakfast. Now Ace was able to relax, to pretend that his life wasn't lived in the shadows. He strummed a final chord, listening, soaking in the mellow tones like a balm. The tones echoed back into his being. He was at peace. The rest is silence. Hamlet's final words replaced the music. Ace closed his eyes. He needed a vacation. He'd been skip-tracing for almost a decade without one. 
Sure, he got to travel, but it was always for the job. As he lifted his hand to start the music again, a sound caused him to tense all his muscles. Someone was trying to open his door. Silently setting the guitar on the floor next to him, he reached out to the fireman's pole directly in front of him and slid down. With two quick steps toward the dining room table, he crouched. The thrift store specialty oak table wasn't the best cover, but it was better than nothing. He watched the knob jiggle and turn as the intruder fumbled with it. Reaching behind his back, he closed his hand around the grip of his Smith & Wesson 645. As he brought it around in front of him, he used his thumb to disengage the safety. Resting his gun-laden hand on the table, he aimed at the metal door that was now slowly swinging open. Taking a deep breath and slowly blowing it out, he prepared himself for a confrontation. Another gem of Shakespeare's flashed to mind. The readiness is all. A man stepped through the opening. His tall, muscular frame filled the space. He was well-dressed in a dark suit. In his hands, he held a dark briefcase and a coffee. Relief washed over Ace as he recognized him. As Ace stood, he re-engaged the safety. It's a good thing I think before I act, Ace said, grinning taking a seat at the table. Thought you'd be back in London by now. Martin Wingate, a British DCI and friend, held a standing invitation to use the apartment whenever he was in Vegas. So did I. Martin had sent him a message via email about six weeks ago, saying that he would be stopping in. Ace had told him to go by the office and get the key from his mom, since he was out of town. So, where have you been all this time? The Brit asked, setting his briefcase on the table. Work, Ace shrugged. He didn't need to say more. He'd met Martin some years ago when he was on a job. It was his first job in another country. He and his mom, who was his partner, or rather his boss, were retrieving a guy who had skipped bail on a drugs charge in order to go on his honeymoon in England. The foolishness of the criminal class never ceased to amaze him, and the amazed look on the bride's face when his mom's Rottweiler, Gunther, had planted his paws on the back of the guy, knocking him face first on the floor in the hotel lobby, would be a highlight of the stories he would tell his grandchildren, if he ever had any. When his mom and he had first arrived in London, they had informed the authorities who they were and why they were there. Martin had been the low man on the totem pole at the time and was assigned to help with the legalities of getting the guy back home. Martin Wingate, I've been tasked with helping you, he'd said in a clipped British accent, reminding Ace of a James Bond movie. Ace, he'd taken the offered hand and been very impressed with a vice-like grip. Ace, is that your given name? Martin had asked, an eyebrow raised. No, my given name is a bit longer. Besides, what's in a name? Ace had answered obtusely. Martin had stared at him as though waiting to be told the rest of his name. Ace's mother had interceded. Martha Oglesby. Ace isn't too crazy about his full name, but it's a strong family name. Ah. By the end of the trip, Martin had learned Ace's full name and earned Ace's friendship. Must you hold that bloody gun? 
Martin nodded the weapon still in Ace's hand as he dumped his briefcase on the table in front of Ace. Ace lifted the gun, examining it. The perfunctory action characteristic of his laid-back demeanor. It's not bloody. I've cleaned it since then. Ace knew from experience that Martin had come back from a bad day. He holstered the gun. What's got your knickers in a knot, mate? Ace asked, affecting a British accent. Martin looked down at him, an ironic gleam in his dark eyes and a slight smile across his lips. What, don't you like my British? Martin snorted. Don't try so hard and one day you may pass in London. Ace stood, offering his hand to his friend across the table. Martin reached out and warmly clasped it. Welcome home, he said. Thanks. So, bad day? I had to write a blinking report and those ancient computers of the apartment here kept botching it. Trying to send it back home took almost as long as writing the blasted thing. You could have used my laptop. Ace pointed toward his desk where the barely used piece of technology lived. As a bounty hunter, he used the world wide internet almost hourly, but he preferred his mobile phone to his laptop and the outrageous rate his mom paid monthly made the internet accessible to him almost everywhere he went. Unless, of course, he was in the middle of nowhere, also known as Central Nevada. I probably should have, Martin growled. The disgruntled detective made his way to the kitchen sink. He pushed on the water and began to briskly wash his hands, scrubbing as though the soap could take away the frustration. He shook his head, amused. He never worried about the paperwork. His mom, a former librarian, handled all of that for him. He stepped to the edge of the loft and reached up. Extending up on his toes, he searched for the strap to his guitar. Once he had it, he pulled on it, catching the guitar in his arms, cradling it like a babe. He sat in his well-worn seat in the hide-a-bed couch, an orange-brown hand-me-down that had teeth marks on it from when Gunther was teething. He strummed a couple of chords. I'm taking requests, he called out to Martin, who was now drying his hands. Supper. I don't know that one, Ace teased. Martin balled up the towel and tossed it at Ace's head. Ace easily dodged a projectile and strummed a couple more times. Well, unless you restocked the fridge, I don't think there is anything except some very rotten strawberries. I've been shopping while here, but your stores... Martin shook his head. Why don't we celebrate a successful hunt? I am assuming here, of course, that you were successful. Ace looked down at the strings, plucking them one at a time as if to check their tuning. Your assumption is correct. Well then, you had better get some shoes on. I'll buy. I won't argue. Ace stretched up, moving silently to the steps of the loft. He climbed them with a sigh. Although the hunt had been a success in that he'd found the guy, he was exhausted. Pretending to be what he was not was his life. He had taken a line from King Lear as a motto in hunting. Have more than thou showest, speak less than thou knowest. Upon hearing it in college, he knew it would become a way of life. He just didn't know it would be so hard. He never shared everything with anyone. And there were times, like now, when he was tired and emotionally drained, that he wished for a confidant more than life. The closest thing he had was his mom. But even with her, he had to hide certain things. Usually she would find them out, but he tried. 
After his dad had died, she tried to keep him on the straight and narrow, even though at times the job sent them down crooked roads. He knew that the next time he saw her, she would feel obliged to give him the speech again, the one about refraining from the appearance of evil. As a Christian, his mom held the standards high, and while Ace shared her faith, he did not believe that the expedient should be sacrificed on the altar of separation from the world. Ace pushed thoughts of that conversation down as he put his guitar in its case. Going to his dresser, he slid his wallet into his back pocket and exchanged his small-of-the-back holster with his shoulder holster, mechanically checking the magazine, sighting it briefly, and checking the safety. He holstered the weapon. The weight against his ribs was familiar and comfortable. The Smith & Wesson 645 was a large gun for concealed carry. He'd tried a lighter weapon once, but when he held it, it felt like a water pistol. He checked his face in the mirror. His dark hair was appropriately styled in a carefree, just-out-of-bed kind of way. His clean-shaven face looked much younger than his 31 years. His eyes looked tired. His life wore on him. Had his dad's eyes looked tired? Ace couldn't remember. He slid back down the pole to the main floor. Ready? Martin asked, hand on the doorknob. Almost. He grabbed his worn brown bomber jacket from the nearby hook and slid it on. With practiced ease, he adjusted the waistband so that his weapon was concealed. Now I'm ready. Martin shook his head. As a British DCI, he rarely used a weapon. One day you might be grateful I always carry this thing. Cowboy, Martin retorted and opened the door. The waitress at the pizza parlor down the street gave both gentlemen a flirtatious smile as she asked if they wanted a table or a booth. Both men answered, booth. All right. Her long blonde curls bounced and her hips swayed as she led them to a booth toward the back. Out of habit, Ace glanced around, taking mental notes on everyone within sight. He didn't see anyone he knew. The waitress stopped, directing the men into the booth. Do you know what you want to drink? Her glossy lips curved into a smile. Actually, I think a pitcher of beer would be brilliant, Martin said, glancing at the couple seated behind her. I just want water, Ace inserted. Fine by me, I need the whole pitcher to myself, and a large supreme pan pizza. Ace smiled at her, noting a young boy running to his mom. Sure thing. She quickly scratched a note onto a pad and turned on her toes, gliding away. Ace noted the exits and kept one eye on the back exit. He knew that Martin was watching the front. So what have you been doing with yourself while I was south of the border? Oh, is that where you were? Martin asked. Ace nodded as the waitress set down the drinks. I've been sightseeing. Just got back from Elko two days ago. Elko? Why would you be there? Ace knew of the town, although he had never been there. Actually, I rather enjoyed parts of it. Martin said as he absently traced the lip of his glass with his finger. Really? Which parts? The lack of people? Of traffic? The cow manure? Well, no, but the scenery was stunning, Martin said, raising his glass to his lips. And the scenery is what gave you loads of paperwork? No, a slippery female did. Martin gave the glass a dark glare and then looked up at Ace. You wouldn't happen to know anyone brilliant at finding people, would you? Ace smiled. That depends on why you're looking. Martin leaned back in the booth. 
I came stateside chasing a lead on Aaron Darnell. It didn't go exactly as planned, and now the super is calling me home. Ace was intrigued. He knew that Martin had been working on unraveling the trafficking empire that Darnell had built in Europe for years. If the man was coming to the States with his business, it could be a great opportunity to catch him before loyalties became deep. So what's the lead? A woman, Joyce Caracas, who, according to all my intel, no longer exists. Finding a ghost was right up his job description. I'm certain Darnell wants the setup here, but I need this Caracas woman to get anywhere. Well then, Ace leaned back as the blonde appeared with the pizza. First we eat, and then give me the details. I'll send out some feelers. Brilliant, Martin smiled, lifting a hot piece of pizza off the pan. Ace watched the white cheese stretch until it snapped. He said a quiet prayer of thanks before taking his own piece. The pizza was good and quickly disappeared, filling the empty spot in his stomach. He tossed a crumpled napkin into the pan. So, tell me about this Caracas lady. He pulled out a small notepad and pen. He usually didn't need much to find someone, but he would need more than a name. There isn't much. George Earlson had a business card with her name, a number, and Vegas Studios. Nothing came up when you ran the number. Burner phone. Ace nodded. I asked the locals to look into the studio, but the guys here are rubbish. Said they would get back to me. Well, give me a couple weeks. I think I can find you something. Right then, I won't feel so useless back in London. Martin snatched the check and started for the register. Ace looked down at his notes. He would get his mom on it in the morning. Maybe it would even detract her from his recent escapade. You can find Father to the Fatherless and all of Serenity Orr's books online. And that is going to take us out. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.